If you could write the story of your life, what would it look like? Like, I mean, you, I mean, you could write the plot points. You could say who you got married to. I don't know if it'd be different to anyone. Uh, you could say, you know, where you live. You could say what you do for a living or not do for a living. What would the plot points look like in your life? If you could write the script, would you travel? Would you maybe write in financial security so you just don't have to worry about that necessary evil? Would you do public service? What, what would it be? Um, what would your family look like? Would you have different parents? Would your parents have been acted differently? Where would you work? Where would you live? Where would you go? What would happen to the people around you in your life? Like You can make all this stuff. Think about the kind of life story if you could be the author. What would it look like? If you could write such a story about your life and everyone involved, you'd be God. So hold that thought off to the side for a minute. This evening we are going to be starting a series within a series. And as you know, uh, since January we've been in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, particularly in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. But as we are now four weeks from uh, celebrating the resurrection, we are doing this new little mini-series called Road to the Resurrection. I'm just real creative. My Titles are not my thing. But anyway, it's, it makes the, makes the point. We're on the road to resurrection, to celebrating the resurrection, so we're going to leap forward for just a few weeks to Matthew 26, which is the beginning of what's commonly known as the passion narratives or the suffering narratives. It's the last things that Jesus says and does in his life leading up to the cross and to the resurrection. So, with that in mind, let's stand as we read Matthew 26, 1 through 13. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in a court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head, and he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant. They saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price, and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother this woman? For she's done a good deed to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Lord, um, it is hard to fathom that you chose to walk down this road of passion or suffering for me and for us. Lord, I pray that you would open up your word to us this evening. That you would help us to be expectant to hear from you. And that you would challenge maybe our 
our assumptions about these words, our assumptions about you, our assumptions about ourselves. Lord, have your way with us this evening. Amen. You may be seated. Now, last week, and probably every week, we talk about the importance of context. Last week, it was the importance of recognizing that in Matthew's Gospel and in the Gospels in, in general, Jesus is assuming a, a, that his hearers have a general grasp of the Hebrew Scriptures or what we sometimes call the Old Testament. And thus far in Matthew, we have seen him portray Jesus as similar to a Moses-type figure. So God, the great deliverer of Israel, when Israel was in captivity in Egypt, he delivers them out of captivity through Moses. And Moses, the way he does that is he convinces Pharaoh by performing ten mighty deeds. Right? Remember the ten plagues. And then when they get out in the wilderness, he takes Moses up on a mountain and gives him the law, the ten commandments, which help help the people to know who God is. Now similarly... Matthew has shown us that Jesus also, like Moses, went up on a mountain, on the Sermon on the Mount, and he not only received any kind of law, but he preached, he expounded on the law of God, he showed the ethic and the heart behind that law, and he showed how he fulfills the law. Then when Jesus came down from the mountain, he too, like Moses, performed ten mighty deeds. And these mighty deeds set people free from physical oppression. And from uncleanliness and, and, and social uh, outside, being socially outside everyone else. He, he healed people of those things. And in our passage this evening, we see yet another echo or, or, or an illusion suggesting that Jesus is kind of like a Moses figure. When Moses had finished teaching the people of Israel, for example, in Deuteronomy 32, he said, or we, we read, and when Moses had finished all these words, da 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 da, it keeps on going. Here in Matthew 26, 1 we read, and when Jesus had finished all these words, and it goes on. Matthew has organized his material so that there are five major blocks of teaching in his gospel. Five major blocks of teaching. They're all kind of, all Jesus' teaching are crammed together in Matthew in five different little sections. And at the end of each one of those sections, we read, And when Jesus had finished these words. And that's how you know that now we're transitioning to a new section. Five blocks of teaching. Interesting. You know in the Hebrew scriptures, those first five books of the Bible we call the Pentateuch or the Torah. Those are also known as the five books of Moses. I think that's cool. I'm a nerd. Okay, so Matthew is casting Jesus as kind of a a deliverer like Moses from a new exodus. But this exodus isn't from oppression by Egypt. It's not even an exodus from the oppression of Rome. It's much bigger than that. Jesus is cast as a new Moses, a better Moses, who is going to deliver the people from oppression, from sin and death. The big question about Jesus being a deliverer is how. How will all of this happen? You know, uh, when Moses and God deliver the Israelites from Egypt, he does it by having the Red Sea swallow up the Egyptian army. How is Jesus going to rescue? Well, if we continue on in our passage this evening, we read, When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. 
Now Jesus in Matthew's gospel has already predicted his death numerous times. This is the last time he predicts his death in Matthew's gospel. He says it's two days away. He's declared it. He's spoken of the reality of his crucifixion in verse 2. Now let's move on to verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. They were saying, not during the festival, that is the Passover, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. If you could write the script of your life, what would it look like? If you could write the script of your life, you would be God. If you were God and you were writing the script of your life, would you intentionally put in rejection and suffering and crucifixion? Would you intentionally put that in? You might as well add cancer and losing your loved one. I mean, would you put that into your plot line? The remarkable thing about these first five verses of Matthew 26 is that Jesus knows he's going to be crucified and yet he still marches on toward the cross. Like, if I find out or get a premonition that I'm going to be crucified, I run the other way. I get out of Dodge. I go hide somewhere. Right? Jesus, with his face set like flint toward Jerusalem, just keeps on marching toward his own passion. But there's more here than Jesus merely seeing into the future and making a prediction. Matthew has been tireless throughout his gospel in trying to tell us that, that Jesus has this authority that when he says things, things happen. He has authority to change the world with a word. Right? Jesus says the word and people are healed. Jesus says a word and like a stormy sea is calmed down. Like that. He says a word and demons are cast out. Now, who else do you know of that speaks things into being? Who speaks the world into being out of nothing? Of course, God does that. Uh, in the book of Genesis, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we go on a little further, it says, God spoke and there was light. God spoke and whatever he spoke comes to pass, like out of nothing. How does Matthew's gospel begin? His opening words are Biblos Geneseos, literally the book of Genesis. Jesus speaks about his crucifixion. He says it's coming in two days. And then the chief priests and the elders gathered to conspire against him. There is such irony right there. The people conspiring to kill Jesus want to do it through stealth. And I don't know what that means. Hire ninjas, perhaps. I don't even know if ninjas were in that area at this era. But they wanted to avoid the Passover because it might cause a riot. Right? They wanted to do it stealth. They think they are in control. Jesus, on the other hand, shows that he's not just handed over to these authorities. He hands himself over. He is able to write his own script, and yet he chooses. He chooses to go to the cross for you and for me. He's like a Trojan horse of grace. The conspirators want to wait at least a week for the Passover crowds to disperse. 
And Jesus tells his disciples, this is all going to happen on purpose during the Passover. When the Passover lambs are slaughtered. Reminding people of when God passed over the people's house, the angel of death. Jesus is going to plan this to happen. Showing that he himself, being sacrificed, takes on the sin of the world. Amen? Alright, shake it out now. Wake up, because that is really good news. So I want you to keep that in mind as we keep going here. That's just the prologue. Those first five verses introduce the next three chapters. So that's all prologue. And I don't know about you, but just that amount of information is cause to worship. If you could write your own script in life, the plot points, the details, would it look anything like this? What kind of Lord do you know who would willingly go through such suffering when he is completely innocent and has the power with a word to change his own circumstances? Think about that. He could do whatever he wanted to do, write his own plot, and this is the one he does for you and for me. I want to encourage you now to take a, a pencil or a pen and your bulletin or a piece of paper and write down one word. Write down a word that comes to your mind. It could be a thought. It could be a feeling. What word comes to your mind when you hear that? That Jesus could choose his own plot line and he chooses to go to the cross for you. Let me just give you a minute. I'm going to encourage you to actually write that word down. There'll be a quiz later. When I was in the Coast Guard, I was stationed on a couple of different ships in my, during my seven years in. And one of the, the things you don't want to happen on a ship that's made out of metal is to be way out on the ocean and have a fire. Because metal gets really hot and there's nowhere to go. And so, as you can imagine, we went to firefighting school, you had to do fire drills all the time, and we would practice, you know, there's alpha class fires, which are like combustible materials, like if your mattress catches on fire, something crazy like wood and paper. And then there's Bravo class fires, which are fuel oil fires or lubricating oil fires. They burn very hot or, you know, so you need to smother those with foam and things like that. And then there's Charlie class fires, which are electrical fires. So we had to learn how to do all this. But by far the worst kind of fire is a Delta class fire, which is burning magnesium or phosphorus, often found in ammunition or in aircraft parts. So if an aircraft were to crash land on the deck of a ship and it got the magnesium started to burn, what happens is literally, even on a steel ship with multiple decks, the magnesium can just burn through deck and drop down to the next deck and burn down to that. And it will burn through the bottom of the ship and go to the bottom of the ocean and keep burning because it creates its own oxygen. And then you have a hole in your boat and a fire and it sucks. So what you have to do, you can't fight a Delta class fire before it starts burning through your ship. So you just have to go straight stream with your hose and hopefully you can just shoot the thing right off the edge of the ship. When Jesus speaks of his crucifixion, he has started a Delta-class fire, an unstoppable chain reaction of events. 
From this point on, Jesus is headed to the cross. It is an unstoppable force of reality. What Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus not only predicts that he's going to the cross, he speaks it, and it happens because he speaks it. He is the one who makes this thing happen. Okay, that's, that's the beginning of the, of the passion narratives. Now I want us to kind of focus in from the big picture, and we're going to look at the first story of the passion narrative. Matthew says that Jesus was in Bethany. Mark and John have similar accounts to this. John tells us that Jesus was at the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha's brother. It takes place just after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Matthew places Jesus in this guy named Simon the leper's house. We don't really know who Simon is, but it makes sense for Matthew showing us that Jesus does life with outsiders and unclean type people. And while Jesus is in his home, this home, a woman comes to him with an alabaster jar containing very expensive perfume. Mark tells us it's worth 300 uh, a year's wages, basically. A, a perfume that's worth a year's wages. It's a lot of money. As we piece together the story, it looks like Luke's version of this is probably talking about a different occurrence. And there's strong reason to believe that this woman in Matthew's story is none other than Mary, not Mary Magdalene, or not Mary a prostitute, but Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. And judging from what we know about her family, it's likely that her parents are dead, which is why she lives with her brother and her sister. Of course, in that culture, uh, women could not really earn a respectable living. They were dependent on the, uh, the head male of their family. Unmarried women couldn't just go make an honest living. This perfume of Mary's was likely an heirloom or maybe a dowry that was passed down from her parents. It's her nest egg, in other words. It's the same as maybe if you have a retirement account or something that you're banking on for the future. That's what it would be like. Expensive perfumes were used for anointing dead bodies for burial. And if stored in an alabaster jar, like is described here, it's kind of a one-time use. It's sealed up so that it doesn't evaporate or lose its fragrance. And once you break the neck of the bottle, you use it up. Mary comes to Jesus and pours this whole jar on his head. If I could sum up what's going on this far, I'd do it like this. Mary has just taken out her whole retirement fund and she spent it on something impractical for the person closest in her life. She has literally poured out the contents of her heart onto the object of her devotion and she has spared no expense. Put yourself in that room for a minute. Probably a small room, most of those rooms were. And think of a, a fragrance you know. Maybe the high school boy that walks by with way too much axe. It's like, dude, that, the commercials aren't real. No one's flocking to you for that. But think of a, a cologne or perfume that you know, and you spill the whole bottle in a small room. Think of the fragrance. I mean, the whole place is just filled up with this smell. Well, the disciples are... Shocked, that's an understatement. They're actually angry. It says that they're indignant. 
They rebuke the woman. Why this waste? The Greek word for waste here is apuleia, which literally means why this annihilation of such a product? Why such destruction? Those are strong words. Why such destruction? For this perfume may have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. And you know what? From my perspective, it seems like they have a bit of a point. Think of what you make in a year. Maybe it's not much, but it's what you make in a year. What if you put all that you made in a year into some oil and you poured it on somebody's head? Like, that's what you make in a year and you poured it on somebody's head. Think of what you could have done with that. Fed your family. You could have sponsored maybe a bunch of kids in a foreign country who are starving right now. You could have housed somebody. There's plenty of charities who would have been pleased to take a year's wages. And you poured it on somebody's head. Crazy! See, most of us, I think, have a pragmatic view of money. And in the church, I think we rightly learn, you know, my money's not my own. It's God has entrusted us with money and our, and our belongings. And so we're supposed to be good stewards of them, right? And it's taught us kind of this, this mentality of frugality, which in general I think is a good idea. Like we shouldn't be stupid with our funds. They're not our funds. And throughout history of the church, there has always been tensions between those groups of believers that want to build huge cathedrals and spend a lot of money on art, and those who say, that is a waste of money, we need to be in the streets and put all that money toward this. And there's always, you know, usually the extremes are, are, are off, and you need, you need that tension. There's always been that tension in the church. But what does Jesus say about this act of pouring out a year's wages on somebody's head, on his head? He says, why do you bother the woman? She's done a good deed to me. You know what Jesus does for her is comes to her aid and rescues her honor. In that ancient Near Eastern culture, Jesus gives his disciples a public beatdown. They are shamed by their master in front of this woman. And on the surface level, I think there's a lesson to be learned here. Sometimes we get so focused on the generic poor, the thousands of needy after a natural disaster, or millions without food or water because of maybe a famine or something, that we miss what's going on in individuals that might be sitting beside you right now or behind you or in front of you. We might miss the individual who has a serious issue right around us. Yes, Mary's perfume could have fed many. Maybe even should have fed many. But her action was pure, unfiltered love and devotion for Jesus. The disciples are pragmatic. On paper, their use of that perfume, their idea of serving the poor, was more efficient, more effective, and probably even more ethical. But sometimes worship and love are messy endeavors, aren't they? We had a guy uh, when I was ministering in California who is an engineer. And he first came to Christ, and he, this guy was just on fire. He just experienced the love of Jesus. And so he would come in after hours and make all these improvements on the church building and one time we caught him on the weekend because I think in passing we said like we really need a storage shed this guy built this shed that I, I swear I, I would not mind living in it was amazing and, and you know part of my mind my pragmatic mind was like 
gosh, he should be doing this for Habitat. Or I know a couple old shut-ins that could really use some home improvement stuff. Like, you don't need to, don't do this on the church. That's a waste. We don't need that. Eventually, he did do Habitat builds. And eventually, he did work with the shut-ins. But you know what? This guy caught fire for Jesus. And it was weird and maybe misguided. But you couldn't stop it. And you wouldn't want to. Like, he just had to express his love and devotion for Jesus. And that's how he, he figured it out. And you know, if you've ever experienced that in your life or, or uh, talked to someone who's on fire, like... You just kind of get out of the way and, and let it get weird and messy a little bit, right? It doesn't always make sense. Mary's devotion for Jesus is impeccable. It's above reproach, even though it's impractical and socially unacceptable. So Jesus rebukes the disciples and says, You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. This passage has been abused over and over again for a long time. Mainly by those who wish to reject the world and live in their heads and in their churches. They claim that what Jesus meant by this passage is that you're always going to have the poor, you can't solve the problem of poverty, so just pray a lot and have potlucks and get fat. Okay, maybe not that far. Now you know me, and when I... If there's like multiple issues that are acceptable within orthodoxy, what I like to do is teach the options and say, you know what, you're grown-ups, make up your mind, do the work. These people are wrong. There is no other way around this. And here's why. It's a common rabbinic teaching style to quote a part of a passage, usually the beginning but not always, and to assume that your disciples or your hearers fill in the blank. So... If a teacher, you know, is, is counseling or working with somebody who's going through trauma, he might say, the Lord is your shepherd. Or the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The idea is fill in the blanks, like I'm giving you the 23rd Psalm, the whole thing, not just the first line. Or if, uh, you know, uh, maybe we're working together and you're saying, I'm having a real problem with my prayer life. I just don't even know where to start anymore. I might say something like, you might want to just start with the Our Father. And that would, be, of course, mean you don't just say, Our Father, Our Father, Our Father. You, it's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's the whole thing together. But sometimes we abbreviate things. And so, check this out. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, For the poor will never cease to be out of the land. That's the part Jesus is quoting here. But here's the rest of it. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in the land. Context, people. So when Jesus is saying, you'll always have the poor, but you will not always have me, he's saying you'll always have the poor, and you'll always be responsible to serve the poor. But something special is going on here. Something unique. Jesus says, for when she poured out this perfume on my body... She did it to prepare me for burial. That's a one-time deal. Here's what I think is going on. Mary, the sister of Martha, or if you don't buy that, whoever this woman is, she has a heart of worship. She is captured by Jesus. Luke's Gospel tells us that Martha, Mary's sister, so not the woman in the story, that Martha was the type of woman who was always too busy to sit and to listen and to rest with Jesus around. She's probably the type of person who goes with her family, they rent a beach house on the Oregon coast, 
And she spends half the time vacuuming the rental house and organizing somebody else's bookshelves while the family's out playing on the beach. Okay? She just can't stop doing stuff and just be with Jesus or be in the moment. She never relaxes. Even when Jesus himself is in her house, she's too busy being practical, doing dishes, making food. She's too effective and way too efficient to just sit there with Jesus. And she grows resentful of Mary. Now Mary, on the other hand, is never described as lazy, but she is described as attentive. It it says that she sat at Jesus' feet. That's a rabbinic idiom. That just means she listened to him and submitted to him. Okay? Now, let me just stand over here for a minute. Preaching is always a contextual event. Always contextual. I am, you know, I sit here most of the service, and then I come up because I'm one of you. You've called me to preach. So I am Letters to Covenant Church just like you are. And when I preach to this community, it's important that I, I kind of know you. And I could preach the same text over at Jeff's church, over at First Baptist, which you know, I preach over there every once in a while, or at Bellingham Covenant Church, and I'm going to change some of the details because it's a different group of people, even though we're in the same city and the same culture. Okay. If I were preaching to a group of people that was overly concerned with just their spiritual climate and overly concerned with just having potlucks, this sermon would be a little bit different. Um, I think that this community, though, I think you are primarily quite active. In fact, in our fourth year of existence as a church last year, you guys invested over $49,000 in serving poor, marginalized, different community servicings in our neighborhood and throughout the world. I think that's pretty good for a little four-year-old church. I'm not... Don't get a big head. We've got a lot to to go. But I don't think that anyone would accuse us in general as a church of not caring for other people. But I wonder... And maybe this is a little bit of me. I wonder if we err on the side of being maybe a little too practical. Maybe a little bit too so involved in the community that we're not really sitting at Jesus' feet. You know, it's a popular myth in Western Christianity that religion is a bad word. I remember about a year or so ago, there was this young man from Seattle Pacific University. He had this YouTube thing, and it's like basically relationship with Jesus versus religion. And he had some kind of really bad poetry or whatever it was. But his idea was, you know, religion is dead, and it's all about relationship with Jesus. And I get get where he's going. Like, if you just do religious things for religion's sake, that's not going to get you anywhere. It is about a relationship with Jesus. But I, um, I don't think that those two things are, are opposed, okay? Like the rapper in the, in the YouTube thing is saying. I don't think religion and relationship are opposed. I would even argue that relationship without some form of religion is lacking. And here's what I mean. Religion is simply doing something over and over again on a regular basis. So... You might say, she went to the gym religiously. Which means that she goes on a regular basis and quite often. means both of those things. Okay? Or, he checked the stock market religiously. Okay? 
And those things kind of make sense, doing it frequently on a regular basis. But I also think this applies in relationships. So I eat dinner with my family religiously, which means that most nights, not all, most nights I'm at home with my family eating dinner on a regular basis. I say I love you to Corey religiously. I encourage my kids religiously. Right? I do those things often and on a regular basis. And I don't think any of you would have a problem with that. You, okay, that makes sense. You got me. But think about how powerful this is conversely. I say I love my wife rarely and sporadically. I eat dinner with my family from time to time and quite randomly. Now, if I was in marriage counseling, someone would smack me upside the head and say, you're making a mistake. (laughs) Like, you can't have a good relationship just being flighty and in and out and kind of fly by the seat of your pants. People need consistency. Now, think of Mary. Mary is religiously devoted to Jesus. She loves him. She listens to him. She sits at his feet. She submits to his teaching. After publicly declaring his death multiple times to his disciples, how is it that only Mary gets it? The disciples might be busy doing stuff. I mean, Jesus sent the disciples out to go heal and teach in the, in the villages. He didn't send Mary out as far as I know. I mean, they're busy. They're doing cool stuff for Jesus. But th- how is it that they miss the actual Jesus? They don't see, they don't, they don't intend, I mean, he just told them in two days I'm going to be crucified. What do they do about it? I don't know, let's keep eating, let's have some more food. Whereas Mary comes in, she is perceiving all that's going on. She loves Jesus, she's devoted to him, and she makes a worship sacrifice. She doesn't hold back. She anoints him, both for his death, and it could be argued that she is also anointing him for his coronation, for his kingship. But that's a whole other thing. I don't have time to go down. But think of that imagery there. And her worship isn't fly by the seat of her pants. It, it, it stems out of the fact that she's actually spent time with him. You know, it's like the difference between getting your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend or your mom or dad a gift that's thoughtful, like something that is meaningful to them because you know them very well, or... Uh, it's the dad's birthday again. Gift card at Amazon so he could buy anything. I mean, which is not bad. I love Amazon gift cards, by the way, because I'm not gonna buy anything. But and and knowing me, that would be a, pl- a good gift. But 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 this is so thoughtful because she she knows Jesus so well that she's perceiving what he's been saying. The heart of worship is right response to who Jesus is and what he's done. In our context, you and me, in 2013, we can't pour uh, oil on Jesus' head. It's inappropriate. He's already done that. He's already gone to the cross and risen from the dead. What if the true heart of worship wasn't an either-or? What if it wasn't either studying the Bible more often or praying more often singing more christian songs more often, or community service and, and doing stuff. What if it, you know, is both of these? Jesus says, uh, just a, a chapter previous to this one that we're studying, whenever you do something to the least of these, you do it to me. 
most effective ministries of social action are started by people who have very deep devotional religious lives. Mother Teresa, I mean, we, we all know that name and how amazing her ministry was. She's quoted numerous times saying she started every day with three hours in prayer. That would drive most of us pragmatists crazy. What, three hours? What, God, God doesn't even know our prayer in like 30 seconds? He already knows before we ask Him. God, bless my day. Let's get to work. And that's the American way. But here is this woman who is so effective and yet spent three hours every day in prayer. The two are somehow related. And I think Mary's on to something. And she's perceptive to Jesus' heart. So what should our response be? And I wonder if our responses don't start with that word you wrote down earlier. With that word you wrote down earlier. We looked at this amazing, humbling fact that Jesus purposefully endured suffering and the cross for you and for me. All while he had the power to turn away, to write a different plot line for his life. And I asked you to write a word about what that made you feel like. How do you respond to that? I think the heart of worship for each of us starts right there.